Welcome everyone to Between the Lines, the podcast from Jewish Quest. My name is Simon Eder, and each week I'm joined by a special guest to help us deconstruct that week's parsha, exploring new insights and meaning in the Torah. And it's wonderful as we begin our journey through Vayikra to welcome Rabbi Adam Zagoria Moffat, who is the rabbi of St. Albans Masorti Synagogue. He was ordained at JTS in New York, where he also received an MA in Jewish thought, studying the political philosophy of Rabbi Yehuda Ashlag. Um, He grew up in the States and has been co-editor of the first Hebrew-English egalitarian Sephardi, I hope I've got that in the right order, Sidor, and also runs the independent publisher Izun Books. Not a stranger to Between the Lines, we welcomed you now, I can't believe it, Adam, but almost almost a year ago when I know we spoke about Pesach, and it's wonderful that you're here with us to explore Vayikra. It's an honor to be back, thank you. Wonderful. So maybe to begin, as we have ended the Book of Shemot and, and enter Vayikra, what do you maybe see as the similarities and differences between the two books? It's jarring, isn't it, when we turn to Vayikra, because it seems like we've spent so long on narrative, on getting to know characters and stories and plots, and we had a hint of it in those last five weeks of Shemot, with the exception of Kitisa, we had an awful lot of repetition about the Mishkan, first describing its construction in the future, and then describing its construction in the past. But I think still every year, we're just woefully unprepared for the shock of going into Vayikra and the fact that it is so utterly different from the rest of the Torah. It's the centerpiece of the Torah, literally, and perhaps metaphorically, but it is unique among those five books. We'll look forward to uncovering more. Maybe just to begin with, it is also striking that obviously the much of the opening of Vayikra concerns itself with the sacrifices. And yet so much of the material around the early Midrashim of Vayikra are concerned not with those sacrifices at all, but with quite literally the word Vayikra. And I wonder really what you make of that. What is the significance of God's call to... You're correct in pointing out the inequality of focus regarding the content of Vayikra versus the word Vayikra. I think it partially is because we're just really bad at talking about sacrifice. I mean, maybe we can say a bit more about it ourselves and try and correct that in a minute. But I think most rabbis probably would rather talk about the word than talk about the content just because they don't really know what to say. It's A bit like when we get to um, Tazria each year, I think everyone's desperately scrambling to say something about the Haftarah, because there's not much they want to say about the parasha itself. But it's not unusual for unusual bits of the text to gather attention and to grab people's focus. And of course, the notable thing about the first word of Vayikra is that in the Masoretic text, it's almost always written with a small little olive, which doesn't really explain itself. There's nothing immediately obvious about why that is. 
the commentaries, as you say, have probably a dozen answers at least. The most famous answer that's given is from Rashi, as usual. And he gives what to me is a really strange explanation, which is that the Aleph there is due to some anxiety that we might misinterpret the word Vaigra and God called as Vai, which would be used, will be used later in the book of Numbers about God's encounter with Bilam, and usually means to encounter, to meet, to befall, and it usually has a negative connotation. Something befell someone would be Vayikar. It wouldn't sell the idea that this is something exciting that we're going into in the book of Vayikra. So Rashi is pointing out this anxiety, and it's telling in some way, because to get a bit nerdy about it, to be honest, grammar, as usual, matters a huge amount. And Hebrew grammar is not quite what we're often taught it is. We're taught about the three-letter root system, which is there for many roots. But for some of the oldest roots, there's actually not really three letters. There's three letters that are, it's forced into a system of three letters, but there's often only two. So just, this is a great example, right? We have three different roots that start with kufresh, one that ends in aleph, which means to call, kufresh aleph, kara. One that ends in hey, kara, which means to meet or to encounter, and one that ends in Yud, Kufresh Yud, which actually is almost exclusively used for nocturnal seminal emission, but means misfortune in many other contexts as well, something unlucky. So it might seem at first like these things aren't connected, right? To call to someone or to recite something, to meet someone, and to have misfortune fall upon. But in many other Semitic languages, you can see the fact these are interchangeable and that originally there was only really two letters and they weren't so distinguished. And I think maybe Rashi misses the point when he says that it's about anxiety, that maybe we're casting aspersions on Moses, comparing him to Bilam. Because actually in Arabic, the same root that would be the, the root if the Aleph wasn't there, Kufresh, hey version, as Rashi suggests, means to go or to seek something in earnest. And in Amharic, the main Ethiopian language that's a sister of Hebrew and Arabic, it actually means to present something as a sacrifice which of course is deeply interesting to us. What if in fact we read it in that light, in the Amharic light, that actually Vayikra is not, and God called to Moses, but, and God presented Moses as a sacrifice, prepared to offer Moses up. In some way, it's true to the content of the book and maybe a different way to read the word itself. Wow, we go completely full circle. Maybe before we dive in as best we can to the sacrifices, and thanks so much for walking us through Rashi. Are there any other of the multiple explanations, Midrashim, that explore Vayikra? Honestly, I think they're a bit forced. I'm perhaps a bit harsh on, on many of the Parshanim and the explanations they come up with. A lot of them really focus on the small Aleph as hinting to Moses' humility, which is not unusual. We talk about Moses' humility frequently. And of course, you know, what's more humble than to take leave of the stage for a book and allow Aaron and the priests and the priestly system to be the focal point. Moses is not the main character in Vaikra for the first time in a while. So perhaps there's something to that idea that it indicates some degree of humility. But I think more likely it's probably, to be honest, the least interesting explanation is probably true, which is that it's marking out a scribal uncertainty about what word is meant to be there. Probably an uncertainty about which version of kuf resh roots we're meant to be using, which is interesting, but probably not quite as meaningful as rabbis want it to be. 
Okay, so let's maybe dive in. What do you see as the purpose of the carbon? I think it's to go again to language. It's in the name, right? Korban is something which brings close, which is linked to nearness. And the sacrifices the Korban are used quite functionally and quite mechanistically as a way of bringing God closer into people's lives. It's in some way a kind of manipulative technology, we might say, that by doing these sacrifices, we can not exactly control God, because I think that might be an overstatement, but we can influence, we can manipulate, we can interact with in a way that's sometimes one directional. I think sacrifice is a thing that we don't really get in the modern world, partially because it's something we rarely have to actually do. And we benefit from so many luxuries and we have almost no scarcity of resources, particularly in the West, but generally in the world as a whole. That sacrifice isn't really sacrifice only is meaningful when there is scarcity when you're giving up something you actually need. If you're giving up something you don't need, what's the point? It's not really sacrifice. The power of it is missing. And I really connect with an interpretation that I read in, might seem strange, but Carl Jung's diary. So the psychologist Carl Jung kept a diary for a long time, which he called the Red Book, or rather, he called Libra Novus, the new book, but scholars call the Red Book because it was read. And He writes a lot in there about his own kind of prophetic visions. He was a much more interesting guy than your average university psychology class would lead you to believe. And at one point, he talks extensively about the imagery of sacrifice in mythology and in alchemy and in mysticism. And he has a great quote, which he says, sacrifice is not destruction. Sacrifice is the foundation stone of things to come. And for us, as we're sitting here reaching the midpoint of the Torah, it's hard not to see beyond the significance of the fact that this is placed in the center. I think I ascribe a lot of intent to the construction of the Torah, perhaps more than is there. But if we are willing to ascribe some intent to its design, then we have a kind of palindrome, I see it, in the Torah itself. We have Genesis and Deuteronomy on either end, which are actually very similar stories. Both Genesis and Deuteronomy, books one and five, are about creation in different ways, formation about renewal, right? Moses is restating the entirety of the covenant in Deuteronomy. And in Genesis, God is recreating what was obviously already there. So you have a similar mode, perhaps, that we can compare between Genesis and Deuteronomy. Working our way in inside the palindrome, Exodus and Numbers, they each have a very historical focus. Each are about narratives. Each are about journeys and transformations, how things change. And each follow travel, right, from Egypt into the wilderness, from wilderness into the land of Canaan. And and in some way, they're opposites of each other, which is what makes numbers so hard to read sometimes, is it feels like we're going backwards. Leviticus, then, is in the middle. And it doesn't have a partner in this palindrome idea. It's on its own. And it's on its own because the sacrifice which is described is not accidental. It's not as we often modern readers like to think it's, oh, they just threw that in there for the priests. If it really is in the center on purpose, then the suggestion is that it's the basis and foundation, particularly of what's to come, as Carl Jung says, of Numbers and of Deuteronomy, that without a sacrificial system, what takes place in Numbers, what takes place in Deuteronomy doesn't make sense. And I do think that's true, right? If we flash forward, if we can, to Korach, which will be way ahead in numbers. What is God gets 
out of control to some degree. After the episode of Korach, everyone lines up. There's a whole bunch of violence. There's some consumption of people and fire. And then there's a word that's used often about kind of God breaks through the breach, right? Parats. And Moses and Aaron are trying to contain this breach, this what ends up being a plague, as it often is, where basically innocent people are getting hurt because God melted down or in some way overflowed beyond the bounds of what was meant to be. And they start using sacrifice. They start using their fire pans and their offerings and their meal and their grain and their animals to try and constrain and control God. And that only really makes sense when you understand the role that Leviticus plays in giving them this system of tools and technology, perhaps magic, if you want to be ungenerous about it, which with they can use to access and influence the divine around them, which is quite a wild idea. And they don't always succeed. But what it leads us to think is that in many ways, Leviticus is there in order to explain the breach, right? How it is that we can control or contain the natural world, the divine, how it is we can add some order to a world that feels very chaotic. And although it's very bloody, the system that's in place, and an awful lot of animals are losing their lives every chapter of Leviticus, there's something very powerful about that, that the ancient world understood and that we largely don't. And I don't suggest that we pick up animal sacrifice again, but even if we have to use our imagination, I think we can appreciate better the role that it plays in giving us a depth, the blood, the magic, the idea that somehow by sacrifice, real genuine sacrifice, by giving up what we want most, we can influence God, the world, or nature. There's something really powerful about that. And I think that is the reason why it's at the middle is because it is the focal point of the entire Torah. want to come back maybe to the sacrifices in a second. Too much that you have planted that can't be investigated further. But I wonder, just bringing up on your wonderful palindrome idea, that, that mirroring between Genesis and Deuteronomy and Numbers and, and Exodus and then Leviticus in the middle, how you see the purpose and importance importance of time within the palindromic structure because Leviticus I think possibly happens over the course of I know days at the most maybe a month or something like that and yet the other books obviously um in a much more time elapses I just wonder if you might Mm. comment it's a brilliant observation because Deuteronomy I think is the hardest one to work into that because in some way It might be one speech that Moses delivers in one sitting, although, boy, that would have been a speech. Or it may have been his kind of collected thoughts over his life in some way. But it covers a lot of time. You're right. In the content, it covers a lot of time. And obviously, Genesis covers more time than any of them. And indeed, it does go smaller and smaller, doesn't it? Exodus covers a period of a couple hundred years at most, and Numbers covers a shorter period. But Leviticus is probably the shortest. It is condensed and concise and it is very technical. There's almost no narrative in Leviticus. There's a few bits here and there that obviously are secondary to the primary focus on sacrifices, but it's a user manual for God, ultimately. And uh, I think it's there to be referenced and consulted and not there to be understood as a narrative, which is a very different mode of text. There's a really old, there's an old book by Italo Calvino called If on a Winter's Night a Traveler. I don't know if anyone's read it of your listeners, but I recommend it. And the first chapter, he starts telling a story. And then the second chapter, he starts telling a different story. 
In the third chapter, he starts telling a third story. It goes on for a while. And then at some point, there's a middle story, which is completely on its own. And then the first chapter after the middle concludes the last chapter before the middle. And you work your way back in this concentric storytelling circle. And of course, as you go, you realize they're all connected. More modern books have done this as well, particularly David Mitchell's Cloud Atlas, which also does it really well. And as a storytelling technique, it's actually really effective. If you think about it, that we could do that. We get introduced to Genesis and to Abraham and to this vision of nature and order. And then we jump and we get introduced to Moses and we get attached to him. And then we get to Leviticus and it stands on its own. We don't really have a character here. I think one of the questions is who's the main character of Leviticus in some ways, but as a passive entity primarily. And then we go back to Moses in Numbers. And by the time we get to Deuteronomy, I guess the character is the people of Israel, but it's quite fuzzy. But there's a similar concentric circle thing going on here, which I would say, maybe again, ascribing too much intent to the design, but really should make us see Leviticus as the bullseye. In. Let's maybe finally unpack like some of the goriness of the sacrifices. I really wonder what is perhaps the innovation that takes place there, certainly like in relation to perhaps other goings on in the ancient Near East. Of course, there's also plenty maybe to dwell on in terms of the commentary and their radical innovation like as, as well. It's hard. I think the way in which Leviticus departs from the ancient Near Eastern culture around it is less obvious than Exodus, certainly, where Exodus is really defining itself as a new take on a pre-existing culture. Leviticus doesn't immediately feel like that. I don't know if that's accurate, though. I think there is many ways in which Leviticus innovates the sacrificial systems which were familiar to people. I think one of them is that the sacrifices are always and exclusively dedicated to a divine being, which is completely invisible. Many of the sacrifices that we see in other ancient Near Eastern cultures are dedicated to the king or to wealthy nobles. Even Ezekiel, right, later backslides and starts suggesting that we change the sacrificial system to have more of a role of a king. What's really amazing about Leviticus is the kind of egalitarian nature of it. If you are an Israelite, you have a right to bring a sacrifice. You go directly to the priests. You interact with them directly. You have your animal there. It's your animal. You're connected to it. The relationship is so deep. There's no one acting on your behalf. The priests interact with you. You as an average Israelite have access to this system of power, of blood magic, which is incredibly intense. So I think the difference is not the system. Systems of blood magic and sacrifice are probably a dime a dozen in the ancient Near East. The difference I imagine comes, and I'm not certain, but I imagine if you looked into other comparisons, it would be that in our system, it's regular people who can participate in it, who can access that power. It's not priests exclusively, nor is it only elites, nor is it only nobles, nor is it only the monarch who acts on behalf of the people. It's regular, average, everyday people. And that continue something that Moses really started in bringing religion out of the temples, out of the shadowy dark rooms of Egyptian idol worshipping, and into the open, into something which is accessible and visible and free to anyone, so long as they're willing to pay the price, the sacrifice, the blood that goes with it. Thank you. That was a really fascinating way to, to look at perhaps the transformation, which at first glance is maybe not so apparent. 
actually just and maybe finally picking up on something that you referred to the sacrifice as being a kind of a technology i wonder if you could maybe unpack that a little further is that is that is that a way to to view the sacrifices like today it's when i'm teaching about leviticus and numbers to some extent I find I often use the imagery when we think about God of nuclear. And I mention this often because I think as weird as it is, it actually works really well, which is that God is this thing which is extremely powerful and as a result, extremely dangerous. And the interaction between this great power, this energy source to use our modern scientific language and the people who have a particular connection and allegiance to it, hard to facilitate, right? You as a person can't really have much relationship with radioactive nuclear materials and survive. You're not going to make it. What you need are intermediaries to help you access that. Systems and technologies which can harness the power of those materials and use them for good to power our world. You need protective equipment on your side in order to be able to be close to it and not be harmed by it. And you need a kind of system of rules and protocols about how it is that individuals can access nuclear radiation and walk away. So I think Leviticus, to stretch the analogy perhaps, is that handbook in some way. It's about both how is it that we control and constrain and manage this incredibly powerful thing which has agreed to reside in our tent in the desert? How do we contain it and access it without it reaching the boundaries? How do we protect ourselves and how do we allow ourselves to get close uh, without getting hurt, which of course doesn't always work as we'll read about with our own sons. And I think also, what are the protocols? How is it that we've learned to integrate the knowledge of this incredibly powerful thing with the experience of it and make sure that there is a certain degree of safety? It might be a strange way to think about God as a, as, a, as a nuclear radiation source, but when you look at Leviticus with that in mind, it all of a sudden starts to make a certain kind of sense. And I'll just say, if you're not convinced by that, you can be convinced by an incredibly interesting project that was done when a group of scientists had to come up with a way, according to the government, to warn people 30,000 years in the future about atomic radiation. It was a thought experiment, but it was a real research project commissioned by the government. And one of the studies by a guy named Thomas Seabook suggested that the only possible way you could warn people 30,000 years in the future about nuclear radiation and the dangers of it would be to create a religion, an atomic priesthood, he called it, where they would pass on the knowledge of here lies a dangerous thing and here's how you protect yourself through symbols and rituals and imagery and sacrifices. And in some way, I think we have in Leviticus, Lahavdil, our own atomic priesthood. Wow, what a way to conclude. I never thought we would circle from Carl Jung through to the atomic priesthood via all sorts of other things too. Thank you so much for starting our journey with this wonderful handbook that we have before us over the next several weeks as we journey through Vayikra. Rabbi Adam, thank you so much for joining us again. It's an honor as always. Thank you for being willing to indulge such a weird array of ideas. Really look forward to welcoming you back and, and soon and exploring the atomic priesthood further. Thank you. 
If you like this podcast, please do remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, do find out all about our exciting content on our mothership, jewishquest.org. We do look forward to meeting again next week.